0: You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Liz Weaver is the co-CEO of the Tamarack Institute and the strategic leader of the Tamarack Learning Center. And I have the great privilege of having the conversation with Liz on this episode 14 of the Cool Collaborations podcast. So you might have noted from some of my earlier episodes that I'm feeling that collaboration is an important means with which to make big changes in the world. And so I've been looking forward to this discussion with Liz because she and the Tamarack Institute are thought leaders in the area of community change. Many of my earlier guests have mentioned Liz as someone with whom I should connect. Well. It's taken until episode 14, but here we are. Please enjoy our conversation. Hello, Liz Weaver. Are you there?
1: Hi, Scott. I am here.
0: Where are you joining from today?
1: So I am joining you from the traditional territories of the Erie, Neutral, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississaugas in a place also known as Hamilton.
0: Oh, very nice. Nice. When you meet people for the first time, how how do you introduce yourself? So I'm curious sort of how you introduce your kind of work to people who don't maybe aren't familiar with it.
1: I work for an organization called Tamarack, the Tamrac Institute, and we're located in Waterloo, Ontario, although our team is virtual, so I guess we're located virtually. Mm-hmm. Tamarack is a really interesting place. We work with 400 communities across Canada and the United States that really are focused on place-based change, and we call that work Vibrant Communities, and then we also collect knowledge, think about how place-based change happens, and then capture that and curate that and post it online for anyone who's a change maker. So it's open source. You know, if you're involved in any way in place-based change, it's your kind of go-to hub.
0: So can you expand on that place-based change a little bit? Sort of explain kind of what it what it is? What does it include?
1: Sure, yeah. Place-based change is really looking at community. So we think about community change and that often happens in cities, in towns, in regions. And what we've done over our 20-year history at Temerak is we first started coming at place-based change from the lens of reducing poverty. So could a group of citizens get together and really think about how poverty is impacting their community and then think about the levers that they have in their organizations, in their workplaces as citizens in the community to really end and eliminate poverty in their community. So that was the first kind of entry point into place based change that we started with at Tamarack. But since then, we have expanded that to look at the issues of social isolation and loneliness, at communities getting ready. To really tackle some of the issues around emergency preparedness, and now most recently we 're looking at uh, how communities can build better futures for youth in their communities, and also how they navigate climate transitions. so we really believe at Tamarack that communities have a really interesting entry point it 's where people see themselves it 's how they 're connected and you know using the resources the energy the potential of citizens and organizations and local government and philanthropy faith-based organizations and anchor institutions we have the capacity in community to really drive change forward
0: so you're talking really fundamental well let me ask are you talking sort of fundamental systems level type change or could it be a variety it, it sort of sounds like it might be a variety of Sort of scales and depths. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It is a variety of um, scales and depths. And so, you know, a couple of years ago, we heard from Karen Pittman, who is the former CEO of the Forum for Youth Investment in the United States. And she had a very interesting quote. She said, programmatic interventions seek to change the odds. Systemic interventions help people beat the odds right? And so it is kind of thinking about, you know, we need both programmatic change happening in communities, but we also need to begin to think about how do we start to shift the systems, right? How do we start to shift the way policy happens, the way resources flow in communities, you know, the way programs are delivered, how people think about these issues, whether it's poverty, or the engagement of youth, or youth leadership, or climate transition. And so I think at, at Temerac, we're working with communities to look at both sides of the equation, right? What are the programmatic changes that can happen? But also, what are the systemic interventions, or the systems interventions that really we have to shift? And who has the levers to make those shifts happen?
0: Does it often involve um, governments, sort of in the role of government you know government kind of likes to to lead these things or, or push you know particular you know avenues of programming etc does it kind of go as a government is government part of that equation as well like how does government show up i guess is the question i'm really trying to ask
1: Yeah, no, it's a a really good question. You know, so often, I think what we've seen is that lots of us turn to government and say, government, you know, you have all the solutions. And we know that that isn't true, right? That when it's only government trying to bring these changes forward, and they don't have the buy-in of the community, or they don't have the organizations working in partnership with government, we don't get to the change that we really want in our communities. So, government is often thought about as, you know, the key driver of change, but there's this important role that we all play as citizens in our communities as adopters of change, as leveraging our own resources, as, you know, being part of organizations that are also driving change. And so we really talk about, uh, you know, and it it's been at the very core I think, of the Tamarack Institute and the work that we've done is that we look at kind of a multi-sector approach right? So government is a partner at the table, but not the only partner. We really see, you know, sector partners being government, business leaders, businesses themselves, both large and small in communities, the not-for-profit or civil society sector, including, you know, faith institutions and educational institutions and healthcare, but also agencies of all sizes. And then we also really think A critical role is played by citizens, both, you know, citizens who have always been at the forefront of issues, but it's also citizens who have the lived and living experience of that issue, who can really talk about it from their perspective about what's working for them in a community or in a place and what's not working for them. What are the continual barriers that they're having to navigate to really make that place work for them effectively. And so, you know, we think that the problems that our communities are facing right now are so complex and they're so kind of joined up together that you need this kind of 360 perspective to really understand the complexity of the problem, but also the 360 view really helps you kind of identify what are the what are the ways that we can navigate into that problem. And where are the solutions sitting to the the way the problem is showing up in you know the community, um, whether it's Hamilton or Vancouver or you know Yellowknife? Because each of those community experiences is also different. It's also contextually driven by who's in that community, who's participating, and how that problem is expressing itself.
0: So I'm curious to, to get a sense now of sort of how you how you got to here. So you have talked about kind of Tamarack and sort of the suite or the kind of work that Tamarack does. Tell me a little bit about you and how you got to sort of this point, like in this role and things like that. So what's your background?
1: You know, I've always worked in the community sector, right, in one way or another, and have navigated through a number of different organizations. But I've always been really curious about not only the organization that I've had the opportunity to play a role in, but also what's that organization's relationship in the community that it sits in. And so my career has been pretty varied. I was for a while, the executive director of Volunteer Hamilton. And in that role worked with my colleagues at Volunteer Canada and really kind of thought about the role of volunteers in communities and what that experience meant across Canada moved to the YWCA in Hamilton as the CEO. And from there, went into this really deep role of trying to address poverty as the director of the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. And this was one of those multi-sector tables, right? Where we were trying to really think about, you know, what was the experience of poverty in the city of Hamilton? And how did we, how could we work differently? Could we actually move the needle on something that was as critical as poverty reduction? At that time, Tamarack was, we were connected to Tamarack. We were one of the initial trail building communities of Tamarack. We were kind of trying to figure it out. And then that path led me to Tamarack. So it's kind of been always in my career, this connection to community.
0: I'm curious now how, when you think about the word collaboration mm-hmm. and how it's been showing up for you and for Tamarack over the years, how how would you define collaboration? What's Is there a particular way you think about it?
1: Yeah, I draw on David Chrislip's work. So David Chrislip is an author in the United States and a practitioner of collaborative leadership. And when I was at the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction and as part of our connection to Tamarack, David came to one of the sessions and spoke about the collaborative premise, right? And essentially, the collaborative premise is that if you bring the appropriate people together with good information and good facilitation, they will work towards better outcomes for the community. So it's interesting, right? Because David, in that collaborative premise, he talks about the appropriate people, which I think is really important. It's not everybody, but it's the appropriate people for the issue that you're working on. He also uh, describes, you know, good information and good processes, right? So it's not just people coming together to sit around a table and say, hey, we want to tackle poverty. It's having the right kind of information being data informed and evidence driven, and then having good processes because we know that when you bring people with the lived experience of poverty and business leaders and government leaders and community leaders together, they're not always going to agree on the right solution. And so you need good facilitation for those kinds of conversations. And when you have those ingredients in place, What I witnessed is that you actually get, you're able to enable these groups to work collaboratively together towards good outcomes. That's always been for me at the very core of what I think about from a collaboration perspective.
0: You know, it's funny, you kind of went back on that appropriate people, because as soon as you mentioned, you know, appropriate people, good information, good process, I was right away trying to think in my head, like, what makes the right people? Because I've had the conversation with with some people around randomly selected people can sometimes be, you know, really good additions to a collaborative process. So I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on on what makes somebody inappropriate for a collaborative process.
1: I would maybe frame that question a little bit differently or frame that comment a little bit differently, because I think so often in collaborative processes, we talk to the people we always talk to right? And so they're good. But when we talk to the people that we always talk to, we get the same solutions. And I would think that appropriate people are, whatever the issue is, how do we get that 360 lens, right? So who are those people that will bring different perspectives that will bring, you know, lived experience to the conversation that will be able to in open and honest way, say, hey, this isn't working for me you know or the service that you deliver doesn't actually meet my needs right and how do we create the space that kind of safe space where we can have these conversations and really dig into the issue a bit deeper and so i think the appropriate people are people that do bring different perspectives that are willing to challenge the status quo that might take us out of our comfort zones a bit and will help us kind of see the issue from a lens that is different than ours. There are maybe sometimes inappropriate people. And these are people that, you know, are maybe not willing to change, right, that kind of keep you held in one place, because they're fearful of perhaps exploring something in a new way with a different perspective. And so, you know, they would be people that I'd want to, they might be at your table, and I'd want to kind of understand, you know, what's holding them so firmly to the the lens or the view that they're bringing to the issue that you're trying to tackle collectively. And so, you know, I think sometimes we might say, oh, you shouldn't be involved. I would want to go a little bit deeper with them and really kind of get an understanding from them. Why do you hold on to that perspective so tightly?
0: So it almost seems like really the the appropriate people could be very broad and it it's almost just keeping people out who are more destructive to the process. They're they're actually working, you know, against the process or not not in favor of supporting the problem for something like that, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're right about that. I think, you know, what we also see often when we work with the communities that we work with at Temerac, that people wait for certain people to show up, right? the You know, we can't move forward because Mabel's not at the table, right? The, I tell this story all the time when I'm working with community groups and I, You know, I think we make assumptions about, you know, people making choices about whether they join the table or not join the table. And I think, you know, in collaboration, you want to open the door as widely as possible, but also recognize that not everybody that you hope for will show up when you want them to show up. But that's not something that stops your collaborative process. It's something that you can keep the pathway open for them but keep the momentum of the collaborative process moving forward
0: so I've been reading a little bit about some of the work that Tamarack does and I've run up against this term collective impact mm. and I was hoping you would kind of give a sense of what collective impact is like what what it involves and maybe the scope of what it what it would be
1: yeah so collective impact is a framework that was articulated in 2011. You know, what's really interesting about the work of community change is that it has been going on forever, right? And there's lots of different frameworks that inform community change. I think what is interesting about collective impact and why it spoke to us at Tamarack was this notion of multi-sector voices really informing and tackling these more complex issues, right? So at Tamarack, we were doing the work of place-based poverty reduction, and then you know, in 2011, the collective impact framework appeared in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And those of us at Temerak went, oh, this sounds a lot like what we're doing. And I think what they were able to articulate in the framework was really capture the work of change in a way that provides kind of a framework of five conditions, right? And the conditions are You know, this group around the table works together to articulate a common or shared agenda, right? And so that common agenda is really, you know, this is what we're going to agree to as we're working towards this change. The other condition of collective impact is around data and measurement. So what's the data that's going to inform our uh, the development of our common agenda? But how are we going to measure progress as we go forward? And that's, you know, the condition of shared measurement. The third condition of collective impact or the third part of the framework is what they call mutually reinforcing activities. And, you know, most people kind of yawn because that's a lot of words, right? But mutually reinforcing activities is a really important condition. It says, you know, we're around this collective table and you, Scott, in your organization, you can do podcasting or you're interested in collaboration. So that's a particular skill set. Can that activity help us advance our shared or common agenda? And I work at Tamarack and I have a network of communities across Canada. To what degree can that be a mutually reinforcing activity? And so it's really looking at the folks around the table and saying, you know, what is it that we can do together? that will help us advance our shared and common agenda. The fourth condition is continuous communications. you got a lot of people sitting around these tables. you got to talk to each other. You also have to figure out how to navigate more difficult conversations, like what do we all think about poverty and what do we think are the solutions to poverty? And then the final condition of the collective impact framework, which I think is a really interesting one and has been quite pivotal, is to say that collaboration, this kind of collaboration, needs to have some backbone resources to support the work, right? So this might be human resources, it might be financial resources, but the work, we can't just hope for this work to happen. We actually need to make an investment of resources to make this work happen. And so the framework, these five elements, a common agenda, shared measurement, mutually reinforcing activities, continuous communication, and backbone infrastructure. If you build these elements into your collaborative work, particularly on complex issues, they will make a difference, right? They will help you advance this work more quickly.
0: So one of the things that was crossing my mind, so as you walk through those five, so when I think about collaboration I often think about three parts to it, which is the problem. You have to have a, either a compelling problem and usually a complex problem, which covers a number of the pieces that you talked about. I can see it reflected. And of course, you're bringing people together to work on this problem. You're, you're capturing and trying to create collective intelligence in a way from, from the group. But then the third piece that I, I think about is the creative, critical tension that has to happen inside the group so you can get to a solution and it's often a mix of you know part of Joe's idea and some of Sally's and it becomes this new thing and i'm curious in your mind where do you see the creative element showing up in the collective impact structure or does it does it show up in there at all
1: i think so i think it shows up it shows up in a couple of ways so it shows up in the creation of the common agenda Because this isn't my agenda or your agenda. This is our co-created agenda, right? And often the agenda is about how the community will be different as a result of our work. And so if we think about that, there's a lot of creativity that has to happen in that process, right? We have to co-create it together. We have to think about our individual kind of roles in that and our individual contributions in that. And sometimes we have to be prepared to give things up right? Because we might not necessarily be the best placed entity in the community to be able to drive that change forward. And so there's lots of creativity in that. And I think, you know, um, you know, in Hamilton, we used collective impact as a framework for the Hamilton Roundtable for poverty reduction. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed was just uh, what we also did as part of really seeding community creativity is we ask the community to be part of the solution. And we said, you know, we're here to reduce poverty. We're going to look at the systemic elements of poverty, but we know that there's lots of creativity across the community in terms of the work you're already doing around poverty reduction and we want to we want to reflect that right and so we invited organizations in the community to talk about their community solutions what they were doing on the ground to address some of how they dealt with the issue of poverty and you know it was just so exciting this is kind of a weaving of these mutually reinforcing activities and creativity and it was really interesting to You know, hear about how community organizations were coming together with really quite limited resources to drive change forward. And then the Hamilton Roundtable lifted up those community solutions and said, Hey, if anybody, if any community can tackle poverty, Hamilton can, because we have 175 of these community solutions that are driving change forward. And I think the thing about collective impact is, it's almost like one of those books. I don't know if you're, you ever read them called Choose Your Own Adventure, right? And you kind of are reading through the book and then you can go, it's, a, it's children's literature, but you're reading through the book with your child and it says, okay, you can go to page 26 or you can go to page 29, right? Or and every at multiple points throughout, you're kind of going on a different path and the story shifts and changes as a result of that. And I think, you know, with collective impact, That's the case, right? It's a way of really unleashing the creativity of different sectors and different partners in the community to choose the adventure that they're on under this banner of a common agenda. That's where I think creativity really plays a big role.
0: As you mentioned it, I can see also how it would come into play, and and you mentioned it as well, actually, in the mutually reinforcing activities, because it's actually how you connect those things in maybe new ways that will get you towards whatever the the agenda is so it's you're right now that i i sort of look through it again i can see how it kind of pops up in different ways kind of throughout so that's that's interesting is there an example of collective impact you mentioned the hamilton roundtable but what is what kinds of changes have come about say because of this type of process being applied like what what was seen on the ground
1: yeah, so there's there's lots that we've seen on the ground and also a lot that we've seen, you know, in Canada around policy change. And so, you know, when Tamarack entered this space of poverty reduction in 2002, 2000, 2002 with 13 communities, there was only one province with a poverty reduction strategy, and that was the province of Quebec and with the network of communities we were able to because we were a cross canada network we were able to influence other provinces to begin thinking about poverty reduction strategies to bringing them forward to adopting them. And then there became another level of municipalities adopting poverty reduction strategies. Now, some of them have been really successful and some of them not so successful, but we've also seen significant policy change at the federal government level. So Canada has Canada-wide poverty reduction strategy as well. So, So that's been really interesting, just that kind of movement of governments at different levels. In Canada, we've seen a reduction in the number of people in Canada who are experiencing poverty. It's increased more recently because of the pandemic, but we were seeing this downward trend, which has led us at Tamarack now to not talk about poverty reduction, but actually start to think about the end of poverty in Canada. You know, what would it take for us collectively to end poverty in Canada? And could we be, you know, one of the first countries in the world to do this? So we've seen this decline because of investments by different levels of government, because of investments in communities, because communities are working differently together. We've seen lots of conversations across Canada around living wage and what does it cost to live in certain communities and then how do employers adopt living wage practices. And so there's a whole movement of that across Canada. And the living wage work has had a splash and ripple impact on the conversation around minimum wage. And so we're seeing an increase in minimum wage in Canada, not to the level that, you know, we'd like to see it, but we certainly do see this kind of upward trend. And so there's lots of, I think, really tangible uh, impacts, but then there's also a lot of splash and ripple kind of impacts. And a, a really good example is Calgary. So the Calgary Poverty Reduction Initiative really focused on, with their partners, an initiative called Fair Fairs. And so fares was really working with the municipality to ensure that people with low and limited income had access to affordable transportation. And so they paid less in bus fares, less on transit, and this allowed them then to, you know, access doctor appointments, get to jobs if they had them, um, better support their families, get their kids to school appropriately. So the fair fares initiative has been, a 20-year initiative, uh, maybe 18-year, A 18-year initiative in the city of Calgary. But w- what we've seen is splash and ripple across the vibrant community partners, the cities reducing poverty partners, where different municipalities are also adopting fair, fair practices, right? So... People with low and limited incomes in other communities have more affordable transportation as a result. And that's even leading into a conversation about, okay, so should we even be charging for transit? And what would it mean if we didn't charge for transit? What if transit were free, right? Which is kind of the next iteration of that conversation Maybe we're years away from that right now, but what does that mean for our community and what does that mean for the quality of life in our communities?
0: That's quite an inspiring example, I guess, to give an idea of the progression of how this goes. And then it does take some time. I'm curious, because I know within Tamarack, you also do some work on sort of the leadership, the collaborative leadership side of things. And where I'm going with this is I see When you talk about the splash and ripple effects, it strikes me that somebody's got to make the splash to start that to happen. And how does leadership play into this whole thing? And maybe you can kind of enter into that kind of question any way you want, I guess.
1: Yeah, I think we often, we don't invest in collaborative leadership. We invest a lot in leadership. Or we think a lot about leadership, but collaborative leadership is a little bit different, right? It is about, you know, this notion that we are working together for the good of many. And so it's a type of leadership where you show up with yourself. You might bring the position or the sphere of reference or the sphere of influence that you have with you. And it's also thinking about how you can leverage that sphere with other people. Sometimes you're leading from the front. Sometimes you're leading from behind. Sometimes you're just a cheerleader in all of this work. And so I think, you know, for us at Temerac, we really think about collaborative leadership, not in the traditional leadership sense, but thinking about collaborative leaders can be drawn from all parts of a community, right? They are citizen leaders, they are youth leaders, they are neighborhood leaders, they are the business leaders, they are, you know, the folks in organizations who see the value of coming together and working collectively and how that might transform their organization. And so, you know, we think a lot about that. And when we think about collaborative leadership, we think about the kind of human side of that, right? So, how do we build trust when there are so many different perspectives around this table? What is the role of power? And how do we begin to balance out power? Because there are people who have powerful positions, and then there are people that have powerful perspectives. And so what are, you know, how do we equalize that? How do we lean into it? And how do we enable different perspectives to come to the forefront so that we can have those deeper conversations and and so some of those things how do we give people how do we support people in courageous acts right because if you're a person with the lived experience of poverty and you're sitting beside you know someone from the municipality who has the ability to make a decision about your livelihood for you to sit at that table takes a lot of courage right and so how do we enable you know that courage to come forward and then help the folks who are, you know, on the other side of that to make wiser decisions. And so I think, you know, when we think about collaborative leadership, we think about, you know, all the different ways leadership shows up. But we also think about the human condition of leadership, the notion of voice and courage and trust and, you know, leaning into power and really building a practice and tools that can support folks that are involved in community change to navigate those areas more effectively.
0: It sort of strikes me that what I was thinking was that systemic issues are often what's preventing people. You talked about the personal issues, like somebody who is in poverty having the courage to be at least even part of the discussion. And then it sounds like you're also, through collaborative, collaborative leadership, but also through Collective impact and just just the whole approach, you're kind of tackling some of the systemic barriers to any of these issues, poverty or other, kind of head on in a way. Would that be how you would characterize it?
1: I think so. I think the reality in our communities is that there are tons of decisions that are made on a daily basis, right? And sometimes those decisions are wise and sometimes they're made to be punitive. And so how do we collectively uncover what is wise and good for our communities, but also what is punitive and harm and doing harm in our communities, and then create the opportunity to have different kinds of conversations? So at Temeric, you know, it can be as simple as asking people, why is it important that you're here today, right? And that's a powerful question. So what are the powerful questions around these tables that we can ask, Right. Instead of saying, you know, oh, da-da-da, we've got to do this, we ask the question instead, what would it take, right? What would it take? So it's not about pointing fingers at anybody, but it's actually trying to hive the wisdom of the crowd. I mean, a couple of years ago, you probably know this, Scott, a couple of years ago, there was a ton of authors writing about collective intelligence, collective wisdom, collective decision-making, kind of had a flavor for a while and it's fallen off of our, you know, off of our library lists and you don't see as much being written about that. But I think that this kind of the wisdom of the crowd still is very prominent in the work that Tamarack does, right? Recognizing that people every day in all of our communities are really hoping for the best for their communities and are struggling in their own ways, whether it's in their organizations, in their families, in, you know, their connections are struggling to get there. And collectively, like our our hope is that collectively, we can get closer to there.
0: It's interesting, because I've just recently been reading some research on collective intelligence, And there's the aspects of it that you and I are talking about where we're just naturally smarter in groups and that we kind of understand that because we get to see things through a different set of eyes and we can understand the problem better and see different solutions. There's lots of things that we feel when we're in the room. But this bit of research that I was reading was talking about they were actually measuring the intelligence of the individuals in the group and comparing that to the intelligence of the group. And actually it's not a one plus one equals two equation. It actually is one plus one equals three. They're, they're actually able to measure the collective intelligence is higher than you would expect individuals on their own together to put together. So it's quite a, it's kind of interesting that we're, we're experiencing it. And yet, like you say, it's not really on the reading list anymore. anymore. So can you explain maybe some of the other types of leadership too? Like to, just to contrast collaborative leadership, because I know you've recently written some work on, on sort of different types of leadership. And I was just wanting to contrast sort of the collaborative leadership you're speaking about with some of the other types.
1: Yeah, you know, there's so many types, right? Like if you saw my reading shelf, my bookshelf in uh, my office, you could see that, you know, there are so many books written about leadership, right? And often they're written from a corporate perspective, as opposed to a community perspective. But there's stuff around systems leadership. More recently, there's been a lot written about purpose leadership, right? That's really being driven by a mission or a vision and you know, what's the purpose of what you're trying to do together. There's, you know, just a wealth of different kinds of adaptive leadership. So the the work of Ron Heifetz and his colleagues around adaptive leadership, agile leadership, those are some of the new forms of leadership that really say, you know, in complex issues or in rapid change, we have to be far more agile and far more adaptive, right? And You know, I think it's it's kind of interesting when we look at collaborative leadership or collective leadership, it's actually taking, you know, the things that I've written about are taking the elements of some of these different leadership styles or leadership descriptions and then thinking about, okay, when we're trying to move community change forward, even as we begin to intervene in a community, the community starts to shift right it starts to react it starts to adapt itself and so and this is where that kind of collective intelligence for me sits really at the forefront right we can't individually see everything that's happening in our community we just we just don't have that capacity but collectively we can see far more of what's happening in the community and so when we intervene in one way or another when we collaborate together we now have these kind of multi-lens views on our community, and then we can see how that community is shifting, and that can make us more resilient. It can make the collective work more resilient and more adaptable as well, and really open our eyes to opportunities that we might not have seen individually. So that kind of collective intelligence comes to the forefront. And and so I think, you know, for me, in the paper that I wrote about, you know, these multiple phases of leadership, I kind of had this advice around, you know, what do we need to be thinking about if we're really working at community change? And the five pieces of advice, a couple of the pieces were, you know, you really need to bring people with lived experience to the forefront, right? Because that's, a, that's an important lens into the work that you know isn't often around these tables and how can we help communities to change when we don't hear that perspective or we don't consider that perspective in the challenges that we're trying to change so that's that's a really important element of it i think it is about you know looking at systems and looking at you know what are the systems you know when we when we deal with programs we're often dealing with individuals and changing the experience for individuals in those programs. When we look at systems change, we're actually changing the experience for quite a few more people, right? You know, all of the people that are impacted by that system in one way or another. And so, you know, they could have given a bus pass to low-income people, to a set of low-income people attending a program in Calgary. What they did was they looked at the system and looked at how transportation could be affordable for many more people, right? And so that has a bigger impact. And so, you know, really thinking about systems is critical. And then I think the other thing that I, I really think about a lot is how can we really emphasize courage, right? The courage to ask those really tough questions when we're trying to tackle these complex issues, right? So, you know, I when I was uh, in Hamilton and I was working at the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, a colleague of mine, Jay Conner, asked me this question and he said, you know, is it about you having your job at the roundtable or is it about the community really tackling poverty? And that's one of those gut check kind of questions, right? So to what degree am I part of the problem Or to what degree can I be part of the solution, right? And it's not an either or kind of question, but we have to be able to ask ourselves, how are we contributing to this problem? How can we contribute more effectively to the solution um, to this complex problem, right? And and sometimes we are the problem. And so how do we get out of the way of that problem?
0: No, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I think we could probably go down a few different rabbit holes with the the discussion around leadership for sure. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to add?
1: Um, I'm so fascinated by leadership that is drawn from and works for community. And so I think, you know, I think there's a lot more that we could be thinking about a lot more that we could be writing about in this area. And I'm particularly this year, I'm particularly focused on the issue of power and what that means and how do we understand power and how can we get better at navigating it in a way that enables leadership and enables, you know, collaborative leadership. Because I think sometimes we use power as a sword as opposed to an enabler, right? And right. uh yeah and all of us do that in one way or another. And so that's a big, it's a big, I've been spending time thinking about trust and now I'm thinking about, you know, power and the power dynamics and, and I think power and trust are connected and so want to explore those as well. I would also, you know, be really interested because I know you talk about the dynamics of leadership and the dynamics of collaborative leadership. And so I do think these things are not static that they are moving and that there is this dynamic feature to them. And so really that for me has also been something that I've been thinking about the last couple of weeks is you know how it is much more fluid and how dynamics and being adaptive and agile really play a role in all of this.
0: You know I often think about in a way collaboration is almost like a mixing board for like in a sound studio where there's always some dial moving up or down, like something's always shifting in response to something that's happening. So thank you for, for that kind of focus on the power piece too is interesting. And I agree. I think, I think we could have an entire discussion just on, on that because I often think that I started thinking that the power was almost like a boomerang, that if you gave it to the people, the people would basically turn around and give it right back to you, essentially in the form of trust. But then in a conversation in, a, in another podcast episode, actually with Max Hardy and Anthony Boxall, we, we talked about, you no, know, it's just exercising it in a different way. So there's a transformation of power. Anyway, Ed, I think you and I might have some more discussions on this at some point. I always ask for book suggestions. I've asked just about every person I've spoken to, you know, what is, what is a book that you would typically give to somebody as a gift or that you would repeatedly kind of reference?
1: Hmm. So a shameless plug for Tamarack, but what I found to be really helpful and very helpful to communities is a book that my colleague Paul Bourne wrote called Community Conversations. It's an interesting book because it has two parts to it. One is stories that he tells of impactful conversations that he's had with different community change leaders. And the other half of it is practical tools and you know, how, how do you do this? The use of powerful questions, the, you know, identifying, you know, the appropriate people. So there's an exercise there called the top 100, you know, where you brainstorm with others and then you think about, OK, so if I were to engage Scott, for example, what would I want Scott to do to contribute to our collective success? So Community Conversations, for sure, is a book that I refer to a lot and I give away a lot. A more recent book that is on my shelf and it has to do with power and one I learned, I know you interviewed Carrie from Collaboration for Impact and her colleague Liz Skelton directed me to is a Power, a User's Guide by Julie Diamond. So Julie explores the issue of power quite significantly and so I'm only in the first couple of pages of that book, but I think it's already, you know, intrigued me, and probably will be one that not only will be on my shelf for a long time, but will be one that I'll be sharing with others as well.
0: Well, that's excellent because it's kind of one that sort of speaks maybe to the tools and the techniques a bit, and one that makes you think about sort of how you make use of those tools. I like I like that kind of uh, that balance. So what advice would you give to somebody who is wanting to get into this line of work, the kind of work that you're in with Tamarack? What what advice might you give?
1: What I have found most helpful for me has been doing the work of community change. So having that kind of practical experience that I got from the Hamilton Roundtable, from Volunteer Hamilton, from being the CEO of the YWCA, so being involved in it, but always looking at that work from a systems perspective or a community perspective, and then having the opportunity to scale that up to the next level. So at Tamarack, we have the great good fortune working with a variety of communities and learning from their experiences. But I think for me, it's been easier to navigate that having had that experience.
0: So my last question might be the hardest one yet. This is going to be a tough one. What do you clean first, your car, your desk, or your bedroom?
1: Oh, gee. I think it's my desk. And maybe it's more my computer than my desk, because I do have a little pile of papers here of things (laughs) I'm working on. But my computer desktop is pristine, right? I try to file away things. I try to... um, set up an organization system that really works for me because I'm working on so many files all at the same time. If I didn't have that, you know, sometimes you look at people's desktops and there is like a myriad of, you know, Word documents and files that are all over their desktop. And when I look at that, I just kind of go, oh my goodness, (laughs) that would be so hard for me to navigate. I like, like, I like things in order there. So my desktop is way cleaner than my car and absolutely cleaner, I have to say, than my bedroom. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's okay. I always ask that question because it's, it's an, it provides interesting insights into how people sort of structure things. And it's, it's just a kind of a fun question. I wanted to say thank you for your time today. I, I really, really appreciated the conversation and I, I learned a lot. So thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Scott. I really enjoyed being part of your podcast. I've been listening. I'm a big fan of the other people that you've interviewed. And so uh, really appreciate the time and the shared and the collective intelligence of the folks that have been part of Cool Collaborations.
0: Well, thank you. People like Liz Weaver are the reason I enjoyed doing this podcast. We start off with the work of the Tamarack Institute and then work our way towards collaborative leadership. The undercurrent throughout, though, is community change. Some of it at the largest scale, like ending poverty, and others at the more individual scale. I like how Liz differentiates between system-level and program-level initiatives, and I think sometimes we miss the opportunity to address systems-level issues while we are in the midst of program-level problems. It was really fun to hear about Collective Impact with its five conditions and then explore how my thinking about collaboration fits within that framework and vice versa. It became clear as Liz described the framework that I have not yet explored enough on the data and evidence-driven parts of collaboration. And the last bits of our conversation really got my mind turning as we dug into collaborative leadership and the role of power. It made me reflect on how systemic barriers are intertwined with power and potentially how collaborative leadership might provide a path forward. I have to say that you might hear me using the phrase splash and ripple effect in the future. Thanks, Liz, for bringing that parlance to my attention. What a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Liz, and thank you for listening. Happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating.